Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoil. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us from it now in this hour, that we would understand it, and that we would hear with hearing ears and see with seeing eyes and understand with understanding hearts this message. It's a message that we need to believe. It's a message that we need to trust God. It's a message that you're sending the Savior that we need, that you've sent the Savior that we need. And that we can trust in Him. So bless us as we consider it together. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our study of the titles given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we've seen His wisdom and His power as the wonderful Counselor and mighty God. And today we'll consider the third title, Eternal Father. Jesus Christ is a forever Father. To his people. Jesus himself said, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. And Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, few words in any language evoke the kind of feelings we have when we hear the word Father. Some of us will feel a sense of loss this Christmas season, either because we had fathers who were wonderful but are no longer with us, or because we have unfulfilled longings for the kind of father we've never had. Well, how comforting then to read of the birth of a child whose name shall be called Eternal Father. Under his care, his protection, and his provision, we are safe and will be satisfied for all eternity. So whatever your past or present suffering contains, my prayer for you this morning is that you would leave here filled with hope for the future. Because you have Jesus as your eternal Father, who will never abuse or abandon you or forsake you, but will instead provide for, protect, and love you, both now and forevermore. And so let's look at this title, Eternal Father. Now the English versions are in broad agreement on the correct translation. And so the question here is theological. What expectation does this title communicate about the Christ? about the Messiah to come. 
let's clarify what it does not mean. Because it can be puzzling, somewhat. In fact, some would appeal to this passage and say, See, Jesus being called the Eternal Father is a sign that those terms are just the ways that God manifests himself. Not representative of eternal persons inherent in the one Godhead. Well, that's an incorrect interpretation of this passage. And yet, at this point in the unfolding of biblical revelation, the title, Father, is not yet to be understood in a Trinitarian sense. Now, it is gloriously true that Jesus Christ is God the Son, the true God of true God, eternally begotten of the Father, and sharing in the one divine nature with the Father. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. But both persons are truly God, co-equal and co-eternal, along with the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible teaches us these great truths about our triune God. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about here with this title. In fact, to do so would actually be problematic, because the Son is the messianic king prophesied here, and distinct in his person from God the Father. But Isaiah is not a heretic, right? He's not saying that the Son is the Father in a Trinitarian sense. Well, then what is he saying? Isaiah is not confusing the Messiah with God the Father, but attributing the rule of God to him. Right? The passage is speaking about a ruler. In the Old Testament, kings were spiritual, political fathers of their people. And so this is yet another description of how this ruler will have a concern for the spiritual well-being of his people. It's not an assertion that Jesus is the same person as God the Father. It's an assertion that Jesus will rule in a fatherly way for the well-being of his people. And so that he is called eternal father means that he will be the ruler of his people. He will be their eternal king, the endless monarch. It means that his reign will know no end. Like that's emphasized, emphasized in verse 7, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And so this child will be eternal father, a king whose reign will never end for his people. And so this title, Eternal Father, speaks a word to us about his love, doesn't it? Wonderful Counselor speaks to us about his supernatural wisdom. Mighty God speaks to us about his divine and yet here we have a word about his never-ending love. He relates to us, unlovely in our sin, with the love of a father for precious children. A love that will not let us go, can never be broken, from which nothing in all creation can separate us. In Jesus Christ, the Father, as it were, comes running out to welcome us as prodigals when we come home. In Jesus Christ, the Father demonstrates his love for us and that while we strip our fists in hatred and rebellion in the face of God, Christ died for us. And so Jesus is the wonderful counselor, all the wisdom we need. He is the mighty God, all the strength our weakness requires. And he is the eternal Father who loves us in our unloveliness and the ugliness of our sin. And so what I want us to do for the rest of our time is to just meditate on each word of this title, so that we might see Jesus in all of his glory as eternal Father. Let's start by thinking about the first word 
of this royal title. What title? What does it mean that Jesus is eternal? Well, the word means everlasting, lasting forever. It's the same word Isaiah uses in chapter 45, verse 17, where he says that Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated for all eternity. And that's the idea. It's that it is that which endures forever. Everlasting salvation to all eternity. It's also the word used in Isaiah 57, verse 15, to speak of God himself. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. He inhabits eternity. He is eternal father. A different word is used, but same concept in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. So what all this means is that in some way, the Messiah is identified with the eternal, everlasting God himself. He is the eternal one. Of course, in light of the New Testament revelation, we understand that he is God the Son himself who has come among us as Israel's Messiah. And so with that in mind, let's consider ten eternal glories of Jesus. When we look into the Bible, we find that though this baby was born in history, he existed before it. John 1.1 1, 1 opens with the classic statement of Christ's preexistence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John the Baptist declared to others, This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Speaking to Pharisees during his ministry, Jesus himself said before Abraham was born, I am. Christ existed before the universe was formed. We do not have a Savior who is new to our world's situation. He understands the grand plan for our universe. For from Him and through Him, the world was created. He is the eternal Word by whom all things came into being. And that same Word has stepped into the universe both to save and to rule. Revelation 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Jesus' glory shines as the self-existent, eternal creator. Secondly, he rules over an internal kingdom. Here's what distinguishes the Messiah from all the kings before him, even David. When Israel asked for a king, they had in mind a continuing institution that would provide them with a security greater and more reassuring than the episodic rule of the judges. But they didn't find that permanent in the kings they had. Total security required even more than this stop-go rule. It required a king who would reign eternally. Do you remember what the Lord promised David? When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
God would send a descendant of David who would have an enduring dynasty. His kingdom would know no end. He would rule forever. You know, if you ever heard Handel's Messiah, you know the refrain throughout the song. And he shall reign forever and ever. All the vocalists, right? The basses, the tenors, altos and sopranos sing this line in beautiful parts. And where does that come from? It comes from this verse. This, the hope embedded in this title is that the Messiah shall reign forever and ever. The kingly succession that began with David will never again stumble in failure or be degraded by selfishness or even be interrupted by death. The ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the angel Gabriel told Mary. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Third, he demonstrates an eternal character. We all know what it's like for a politician to sing one note on the campaign trail and then sing a different tune altogether once in office. How many spouses admired the charm of their mates while dating, but then as soon as the wedding day was over, the true and ugly character was revealed. And you feel the deception, the betrayal, the empty promises. It's devastating. But friends, the same immutable, unchanging character of God marks His Messiah as well. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We will not wake up one day to find that the head of the church has left His post abandon his people, or turned against them. No, who he is now is who he has always been and who he will always be. And that is a great comfort. Fourth, he mediates an eternal covenant. Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do His will, working in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Scripture tells us that the old law covenant that God made with Israel was temporary. It was designed by God to be a guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But now that Christ has ratified the new covenant through His blood, by His death and resurrection, we can be sure that our covenant relationship with Him will never end, but it will last forever. Fifth, He exercises an eternal power. Moses encouraged Israel in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, The God of old is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Indeed, the God of old became incarnate for us in Jesus Christ, and we can still rest in His everlasting arms. God's strength and security are now found in Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal power. Amen. And as we saw last week, He is the mighty God who exercises His absolute eternal power for His people's good. Sixth, He maintains an eternal 
presence. The self-existence of Christ means that he will not leave us as all earthly fathers eventually must. And this, among many other facts, makes the incarnation an amazing thing. The eternal God took upon himself the limitations of a human body forever. He did it for keeps so that he could bring us into an everlasting relationship with himself. And friends, isn't this the last thing he said to his disciples before ascending into heaven? Matthew 28, verse 20. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And even though this world is marked by unfairness, inequity, and suffering, those who believe in God's Messiah are in the hands of an eternal Father and Provider. As the author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Seventh, he ministers with an eternal encouragement. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 16-17, through 17, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Discouragement is one of Satan's greatest devices. If he can get us demoralized and dejected, he can weaken our gospel labor. And so he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone whom he may devour. But brothers and sisters, we need not succumb to his schemes. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. If there's temptation to sin, Christ will provide a way of escape. If there's trials or suffering, he will provide the strength to endure. If there's opportunity to bear witness, he's given us the spirit of wisdom to speak boldly. So be strong and courageous with his eternal encouragement. Eighth, he comforts with an eternal peace. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. This isn't a come-and-go peace, a peace that lasts only for a little while. It's an eternal peace. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Can our justification, our right legal standing before God, on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness and death for our sins, can that verdict ever be overturned? Will God one day discover a blot in Christ's record, a defect in Christ's merits? Will he call for a retrial? No way. In church, if our justification is sure, then so is the peace that flows from it. It will continue to flow forever, even as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. Ninth, he gives his people eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, verse 19, Because I live, you will live too. He prayed in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Indeed, we read in John 3, 16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. This mortal life shall end in death. 
but those who believe in Jesus have life after death, eternal life, everlasting life with him in heaven. Many of you have stood at the graveside of a loved one, a family member, and you've shed a tear. You've wept. Many of us during this season especially feel anew the sting of old grief coming right back to us as we miss acutely those who have gone before us. But this scheme defeats death, do you see? Here is someone to whom you may go in those moments when the memory of loss comes flooding back. Here is one to whom you may go, who by his own death and resurrection has brought life and immortality to life, who has triumphed over the grave, who is the resurrection and the life, so that anyone who lives and believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. He is the everlasting one who gives life to all who rest in him. You can look death and loss and grief in the face and say, you lose because Jesus has won. He is the everlasting Lord. Even through tears, we may find hope in the face of grief. And then tenth, he conquers his enemies with eternal judgment. As comforting and faith-stimulating as these meditations are, there is a word of warning to those of you still living in unbelief. Jesus spoke of both eternal life and eternal death, of both eternal blessedness and eternal judgment. In Matthew 25, speaking of the last day, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so if you're here today, and you're holding on, sin in your life, consider where that sin leads in the end. It leads to eternal death. It does not lead to eternal life, but to God's just judgment. And so I want you to consider what's at stake this morning. Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. He's not saying if you dismember yourself that you'll go to heaven. He's illustrating the message that he preached everywhere, which is repent, turn from your sin, leave the life of rebellion against God, forsake the worship of self, give up your love of this present world which is passing away, and turn in faith and allegiance to Christ. See him as the treasure he he is in becoming a child for you, in obeying for you, And dying for you, paying the penalty for your sin. And rising from the dead for you. See Him do all of this for you. And trust in Him for salvation. May you do that even now. Bowing the knee to King Jesus. And He will give you the hope of eternal life in His kingdom. Let us now consider the second word of this royal title. We've seen His eternality. What does it mean that He is Father. And again, we need to be careful here. 
We know Jesus is described in the New Testament as the divine Son of God. He's God the Son in the flesh. So how can he be called Father? We are not modalists after all. Modalism is the heresy that says God is really only one person who manifests himself merely in three different ways. You know, one time the Father, now the Son, now the Holy Spirit. But that's not the biblical presentation, is it? These three names, Father, Son, Spirit, they're not interchangeable. The Father did not die on the cross. Right? Please don't pray, Father, thank you for dying for us. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did not send the Father into the world. The Holy Spirit was not born of the Virgin. We confess with Holy Scripture and with the true church in all places across the ages that God is one singular, undivided being. He is eternal, and He is eternally three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person possesses the one whole, undivided divine essence without any remainder. Right? These three glorious persons dwell forever together in fellowship and communion and mutual delight in such a way that we can say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And yet, these three are one God. The same in essence, equal in power and glory. So again, it's not the Messiah's role within the Godhead, but the Messiah's character toward us that Isaiah has in mind. And in a word, he's the ideal king and perfect father who will always protect and save those who belong to him. So, as before, now let's consider ten fatherly glories of Jesus. And I pray that as you hear these, your faith in Jesus would be strengthened by his fatherly care for you. First, consider his sovereign creation. This word father, when it is used of God in the Old Testament, this is usually the connotation. It means that God is father in the sense of being the creator. For example, Isaiah 64 verse 8 says, Yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. We are created, formed by God, and he is our father in that sense. Or Deuteronomy 32 verse 6. Is this how you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your father and creator? Didn't he make you and sustain you? And again, Jesus is seen in the New Testament to be the agent of God in creation. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he is the creator God as the eternal one. And in that sense, he is our father. Second, consider his glorious revelation. Jesus is eternal Father because he reveals God the Father to us. We know the Father by knowing Jesus Christ. So John 1 verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Or John 14, just before Jesus' betrayal, Jesus told the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. Now Philip, not unlike us, I suppose, 
struggles to understand how Jesus relates to the Father. And so he asks, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. And Jesus answers him, Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is not the Father, but he makes the Father known. There is no way to come to the Father except to come to his Son, Jesus Christ. You can't know the Father apart from knowing the Son. You see the Father by looking at Jesus. He reveals the Father to us. To see him is to see the Father. Third, consider his federal representation. He is federally a father representing those who are in him. The Apostle Paul comes to our help here in 1 Corinthians 15, where he speaks of those who are in Adam, and then he talks of a second Adam. Adam is the father of all living. He federally stood for us in the garden and federally fell and ruined us all. He was the representative man by whose obedience we should have been blessed, but through whose disobedience we have been made sinners. The curse of the fall comes upon us because Adam stood in a relation toward us in which none of us stands toward our fellow. He was the representative head for us. And what a fall there was when he fell. For every one of us fell in him. In Adam all die. And since his day, there has been but one other father to the human race, federally. The only other man who is a representative man before God is the second Adam, the man, Christ Jesus, the Lord from heaven. And brothers and sisters, we call Adam father mournfully, for we are cast out of Eden by him. And we work the ground by the sweat of our face, and to the grave in sorrow we must go. But we who have believed in Jesus call another man father, the Lord Jesus. And we speak this not sorrowfully, but joyfully. For he has opened the gate of a better paradise. He has taken away the sweat of toil from our faces spiritually. For we who have believed have entered into his rest. And he took our sins and bore our sorrows. And while death itself, the heaviest affliction, he has overcome it. So that whoever lives and believes in him will never die, but pass out of this world into eternal life. And that leads us to consider a fourth glory, his saving redemption. Isaiah 63, verse 16. Yet you are our father, even though Abraham does not know us, and Israel doesn't recognize us. You, Lord, are our father. Your name is our Redeemer from ancient times. In fact, the first time in the Bible where we have the metaphor of father used in some way of God in his relationship with his people is in Exodus. When When God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and he gives Moses... A message, Exodus 4, 22-23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Israel is my son. Implication, I am Israel's father. Two more verses, Deuteronomy 1, 30-31. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you, just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. Again, you have... Exodus language there. This is after the Exodus, but now looking back, 
And you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way you traveled until you reached this place. And he's the redeemer of his people. And so when Isaiah says that this messianic king, the one who's to sit on David's throne forever, will be eternal father, this is part of what he means. He means that this will be your redeemer who will save you and rescue you. But how would he do it? Consider, fifth, his loving substitution. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. He himself would say in John 15, verse 13, No one has greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friend. We hear something of a good father's heart when he says, I would die for my kids, right? I would lay down my life for them so that they might live. But it's not mere talk to Jesus. He actually did it for his children, substituting himself in their place to bear the judgment we deserve for our sin. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for, him, for us, so that in him we, the children of God, might become the righteousness of God. So why would he lay down his life for us? Consider, sixthly, his tender compassion. He is a father who cares for his children. Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. Jesus is full of a father's compassion. That's why he came. Compassion sent him. Compassion for the lost. Compassion for us. And you know, as you track through the gospel story, you get to see that compassion moving him and motivating our Savior in all that he did. Luke seven thirteen, the story of the death of the son of the widow of Nain. Luke tells us when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he raises his dead son to life. Or Matthew 9, 36, during his itinerant preaching ministry, there were vast crowds gathered to hear him preach the gospel. And Matthew says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. He's a father who cares. He's full of compassion and tenderness towards his children. Now, some of us have complicated relationships with our earthly fathers. In fact, because of our own painful history, some of us have a hard time having any positive image of fatherhood at all. And so when we read the word father, it tends to conjure for us fearful, dark images of control or anger, maybe even of abuse. And that's what a father has been in our experience. But understand that when the Scripture speaks of Jesus as Father, it speaks of Him as a perfect Father, of an ideal Father, of a real Father who cares, who has never turned towards you with anything other than compassion, whose love is not fickle and never comes with strings attached as though if you just step a toe out of line, He would yank it away from you. He knows all about you. He knows all your defiance and, dis- and rebellion. He sees all of your sin. And He loves you despite your sin. He loves you in your mess and your confusion and your mistakes and your disobedience even. He loves you. 
Like a perfect father, full of compassion for you. You have a perfect Savior in the Lord Jesus. His love never fails. It never runs out. It never gets cold. It's never withdrawn. You can call him Father in the way a father loves his children because Jesus loves us. And seventh, consider his gracious adoption. Jesus is the eternal Father because through him we become children of God. Interestingly, Hebrews 2, verse 13, quotes from the chapter immediately prior to this one, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, where Isaiah himself is speaking of his own resolve to stand fast in the face of apostasy. And he says, here I am with the children the Lord has given me. But Hebrews 2, verse 13, puts those words in the mouth of Christ. So that Jesus says, here I am with the children God gave me. That Jesus fathers us when we are brought by adoption, through faith in Him, into the family of God. Galatians 4, verse 4, speaks about the first Christmas this way. When the time came to completion, God sent His Son. He came into the world that first Christmas, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So that orphans may come into the family. Isn't this what Jesus promised his disciples? I will not leave you as orphans. There are no orphans in the kingdom of Christ. But we're all orphans because of our sin, alienated from God. And Jesus comes and he secures our adoption. He gives us a home. And how do you get to be an adopted son or daughter of God? John 1.12, listen to these words. But to all who did receive him, He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. How do you become a child of God, adopted into the family of God? You receive Him. You believe in His name as evidence that you've been born again. You entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will be able to say the words of 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. Right? There's a sense of astonishment that we, guilty rebels as we are, should have the title and privileges of God's children. Eighth, consider His faithful provision. Right? This is what fathers do, isn't it? The fathers are called by God to be Providers in their families. A dad, if he's able, goes to work. He earns a living. And he helps to take care of the children. Seeks to nurture them, to raise them up. Mothers do this as well, but this is particularly true of the father. Fathers have this role of provider. And it's in the ministry of Jesus that this aspect of God's fatherly care for his people becomes really clear. Jesus tells his disciples who are worried, evidently, about their food and their clothing... He says in Matthew 6, Look at the birds. They're not anxious. They're not working hard. The Father feeds them. Isn't he going to feed you? And look at the lilies of the field. Even Solomon wasn't clothed like this, right? How much more will he not clothe you? Trust your Father. He knows you need these things before you even ask, because he's a good Father who provides for his children. Ninth, consider... His strong protection. 
I think this is particularly important because there may be some of you here that had a, a bad relationship with your earthly father. Not every dad is a good dad. Not every father does a good job with his children. And if that was your experience, if you were raised by an absent father or by an emotionally distant father or even by an abusive father or a father who somehow did you harm, scriptures describe God in terms that are appropriate to that particular need. In scripture, children who do not have a father, who had an absent father, they are called the fatherless. Listen to what Psalm 68 verse 5 says. God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless. He exercises a, a kind of paternal, fatherly care over those who most desperately need and are lacking human fatherly care. He is a protector. And indeed, it is his strong protection that keeps us saved. Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Right? If it were all up to us, as children, we'd fall away. If we could lose our salvation, we would. But it's not possible because Christ, our mighty God and eternal Father, is able to protect us from stumbling. He will keep us safe to the end. There is no unfathering Christ, and there is no unchilding us, Spurgeon said. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. So praise God for our eternal security and protection in Christ. And one more thing about the eternal father, and this is kind of the hard edge to the fatherhood of God in Scripture. He also disciplines and instructs us. Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Well, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, a passage quoted in Hebrews 12, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. And the idea here is not that of punishment, it's not that of retaliation, but is rather wise discipline, instruction, and correction. You might think of this as the analogy of a parent with a toddler, right? Any good parent is going to discipline their children. And I understand that there's such a thing as abusive discipline. There are parents who go way too far and are harsh and unfeeling with their children, which goes against Paul's command to fathers to not be harsh with your children and provoke them. But God is never like that with his children. He disciplines us, but he disciplines wisely, out of love. He disciplines us so that we might share in his holiness for our good. Okay. So how, do all, how does all of this apply to our lives? Let me just give you brief four applications as we close. Number one, delight in him. Just delight in him as a son or daughter to a father. Herman Bovink observed that Jesus takes away our guilt and again opens the way to God's fatherly heart. Everything you've ever dreamed a father could be, everything you've ever wanted from your relationship with your earthly father, Jesus is and will be for you. In Jesus, you have a perfect father forever. So delight in him. Revelation 21, Jesus invites you, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from 
the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Second, draw near to him. Maybe you think, you know, this one just sounds way too good to be true. Well, it is good, and it is true. Jesus once told a story about a son who rebelled against his father and wasted his earthly inheritance on forest living and ended up eating with the pigs. And then he finally came to his senses and said, I'll get up. Go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And the climax of the story pictures the father, filled with compassion for his sin-soaked homecoming son, While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate it with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. Well, do you know who the father is in that story? It's Jesus. He's the Father with a heart full of compassion for sinners. So come to Him today. He will embrace you. Third, display Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a father. What an awesome privilege it is to have sons or daughters under our care. Jesus perfectly models fatherhood to us. We can never say, I don't have a good example. You have Jesus. And Jesus shows us how not to provoke our children to anger, how not to be harsh with them, but rather to teach them to model grace. And so, dads, take your cues from Jesus. Display his fathering in your fathering. Help your kids see Jesus in the way you love, protect, and provide for them. Play with them. If you're physically able, you come home from work, get down on the floor, be the pony. Play with your kids. Talk to them. Make memories together. Show them the love of Christ. And then lastly, depend on Him. Maybe you're here this morning, and it's not so much that keen image that troubles you, but the Father in you. Because you've suffered greatly. And then you project that image onto Jesus. Well, friend, if that's you today, again, we want you to know that we weep with you. We lament the suffering so many endure from abusive or absentee fathers. But if you suffered from an earthly father but are trusting in Jesus Christ, then he is now your eternal father. And you can say the words of Psalm 27, My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Maybe you're here this morning and you've lost a father. Christmas is always a difficult season to celebrate when loved ones are missing. But if your earthly father trusted in Jesus, you can look forward to eternity together. You'll see each other again. And Jesus himself is your eternal father. You may lose an earthly father, but you will never lose Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you aren't a father, but wanted to be. Or maybe you've lost children. Or maybe you have wayward children. And those pains sting particularly hard around Christmas time. Well, Jesus has compassion on you as a father to a son. He will comfort you in your sorrow. He identifies with father pain. 
He knows what it's like to suffer pain. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. So wherever you find yourself this morning, there is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ as your eternal Father. He will never abuse or abandon you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Instead, he will provide for, protect, and love you both now and forevermore. Let's pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, how we praise you. Eternal Father, whose reign knows no end, whose compassion overflows, having given yourself for us to make us children of God. How we praise you for the disclosure you make to us of the Father's heart, of the Father's character, of his nature and names and glory. And Lord, your word tells us whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. And so I pray now that you would humble us, strip us from all self-reliance, Help us to receive this good news like little children who trust in our eternal Father. Would you bring each of us, or perhaps someone here for the very first time, or bring us all to bend our knee to you. Bring us to a place where we come clean at last about the bankruptcy of life lived on our own terms, under our own mastery and lordship, of how futile that is. Bring us to a place of repentance. Help us to turn over the reins of our own lives to the Lord Jesus, to his rule, to his governance, to his kingdom reign, so that as we trust in him now, we may receive the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood or of the will of man or of the will of the flesh, but born indeed of God. And we ask all of this in your precious name.